So I've been really um, struck the last few days by the appearance and disappearance of our camp. And I'm not sure exactly why it's been striking me quite so um, strongly. And particularly today when we arrived and this was our camp and yet there wasn't anything in particular here. And so I want to use that as a, as a kind of um, initial inquiry. You know, what makes a camp or what makes our camp actually? Is it our tents? Is it the kitchen? Is it the toilets? Is it the team? Is it all of us? And what is it that actually makes up their camp or my camp or our camp? And it's really interesting to also see what that kind of what that inner flavor is in relationship to. And so with that, you know, I've been really kind of also questioning, you know, because we've been, we've been seeing the camp appear and disappear. Yeah, appear and disappear. And so when does it become the camp? And when does it stop being the camp? You know, is it when the meditation tent goes down? Is it when, you know, the, the team is starting to pack things up and load them up on the, on the mules? Or is it when they set off? You know, what is that point? When it either becomes something or stops being something. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. And so if we let ourselves reflect on that process, yeah, and how we see it, how we are um, perceiving it, camp is here, the camp is no longer here. You know, is where we, where we slept last night, is that still our camp? We can start to see the involvement of the mind in the process. Yeah, the involvement of the mind. The mind that has this very useful capacity to take different elements put them together and create a thing. Yeah? Takes all these different elements and puts them together and creates a thing. And it's a very useful capacity. Yeah? It's, it's kind of useful to, to know where our camp is. But it's also something that kind of goes on, this capacity of the mind is kind of on, it's active all the time, all the time and in relation to everything. And so it's really worthwhile taking note of that and starting to be sensitive to when that is happening or how that is happening. I mean, when is, like I said, it's actually happening all the time. <laughs> So becoming sensitive to the fact that this is going on, 
how it is going on and how is it coloring and shaping my experience? How is it coloring and shaping my experience? So in, in Dharma teachings, this, this process, this capacity of the mind is often referred to as fabrication. And I apologize to people who've been listening to my talks in the last six months. They're full of fabrication. This is called fabrication. This capacity that we have of taking different things. I'm going to repeat this quite a lot. So again, I'll apologize for that as well. Taking different things, putting them together, and then perceiving something solid with an identity, with permanence, with an inherent existence. And this word fabrication is really interesting and, and has a lot in it in itself. You know, fabrication, it's to make something, yeah, to create something. Another translation of the Pali word is sometimes is concoction. <laughs> so fabrication and concoction, and they both give us a real flavor of, of what is actually going on. You know, this, it's a creative process. It's a... Um, automatic process, so we don't will it to be, it happens through the mind all the time. And fabrication and concoction also really give us the, the flavor that it's actually creating something which is not inherently true or real. Not inherently true or real. So a lot of care here with the ideas and, and the language. Yeah, just we'll go back to the example of the camp. You know, and we're not saying the camp doesn't exist or it's not real. But when we break it down, what makes up the camp, we just see all the elements that make up the camp. All the parts that make up the camp. And each of these parts, you know, has its own kind of flow and flux in itself. So that thing which seems solid, the camp, or, you know, the tent, or the person, is actually made up of flow, of movement, of um, lots of different aspects that are conditioned in themselves. So neither the parts have inherent existence, are solid, permanent, nor the thing that comes together, that is fabricated, that is concocted. So the mind, our mind, our mind, all of our minds, this is, this is the way they work. And don't just believe me. Yeah, really look at this. Really look at this for yourself. Explore it. And it's applied to everything, like I said. It's applied to internal phenomena. You know, right now, this mind state is real, is solid, is permanent. I think we all know this experience is never going to change. Is who I am and who I've always been and who I'll always be. 
So phenomena, experience, and the sense of self. All concocted, all fabricated in this way. If you're interested, it can be very um, juicy to look at this way the mind operates and to particularly explore how it operates in relationship to our sense of self. You know, this is who I am. Yeah, this is who I am. And in, in, in Dharma teachings, you know, there's a real emphasis on this and to really explore what is this sense of self? What is it made up of? To really explore where is it? Is it findable? This sense of identity that I have. You know, is it in the body? Is it the body? Am I the body? Am I the body? And have I always been the body and will I always be the body? A good friend, Rob Robert, he sometimes uses rather a gruesome <laughs> exploration of this, which is similar to the camp <laughs> exploration. He said, when, you know, if I'm the body and the body's made up of all these parts, if I started chopping off bits of the body, when would, when, when would, it, when would the, that sense of I, when would it stop existing? You know, if I cut off a finger, a hand, an arm, or the limbs. Yeah, a bit gruesome. <laughs> but, you know, if it's in the body, then what would happen if I suddenly lost a part of the body? Would, I, would there be less of me? So a bit gruesome, but also really, really juicy, really interesting to look at. Also, the body, which, you know, we say, oh, yeah, I'm the body, the body is me. It's a very, very natural human thing, you know. We don't need to feel bad when we see that that's what we're doing in the mind. Is this the same body that I've always had? You know, can go back and look at our parents' photo, photo albums. That little baby. Is it the same? Or is it different? It's changing. Changing. You know, we're, we're told that every seven years, all the cells in our body are replaced. Yeah? So what, what is it that's gives us that sense of permanence and solidity. Really interesting to reflect. Or we could say, okay, it's not the body, the body's changing. But there's something else, you know, in the mind or in the consciousness or in the awareness. That is permanent, that is solid, that is inherently existent. That is that thread. And is it? Like there's a real invitation to question and inquire, is it? You know, if we just reflect back on, on today, 
Has the mind constantly been the same? The mind states, the attitudes, the flavor, has it been constant? And is, has it been independent of other causes and conditions? Is this mind, which feels so real, so solid, so full of self, is it actually separate? Is it independent of other things, like the weather? You know, like how we're feeling right now about the sun, for example. Or how we slept last night. Or how much space there was in the walking. You know, all these, all these conditions that affect us. So this mind is also not a separate thing. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Not separate also. Not solid, not inherently existent. So both the body and the mind, you know, everything that, all the um, kind of access points that we have to experience, our body, our mind, our heart, if we separate that from the mind, they're all conditioned, yeah, all interconnected, all interdependent, all of these, the state of the chitta, the heart-mind, state of the body, conditioned by some things that we have, some um, possibility to affect, and, and many that we don't, like genetics or our social and family conditioning. You know, things that are just there, are just there. So if we go back to fabrication, if we go back to fabrication, one more really important point about all of this. So everything is conditioned. Everything is conditioned. Or another way of saying it is that everything is empty. Empty of a separate self. Empty of existing inherently from its own side independently. But even more, and this is more subtle, but something that we can begin turning our attention to as we kind of go further into the mountains and further into silence, further into quietness. Everything we perceive is also dependent on the mind. Yeah? Everything we perceive is dependent on the mind. So the mind, is this, this is why it's fabrication. <laughs> the mind actually plays a part. And of course, then the mind itself is conditioned by things. This is really, but this part, the perception, and Nathan was touching on it the other, the other day in his talk. He was saying, we're not, um, are we actually able 
to see things as they are. That great mantra of spiritual practice. Be with things as they are. See things as they are. To what degree is that possible? And can we hold that as a beautiful aspiration and at the same time bring interest to the way the mind is involved in perception? The way the mind is, is involved in perception and fabrication. So this is a really rich area to explore, to start looking, you know, as we've been doing with the Committee of the Mind. It's one way of looking at it. Ah, the mind. There's one dominant voice, and we think that's what the mind is. Even if we know it's in this moment, we think that's what it is. But then we have the capacity to open up the view, just like that view behind me. We have the capacity to open up the view and see you know, what else is there? And there's so much there. And it's being covered up and revealed. And we can look, you know, very far and very wide. And we can look very detailed also. And we can do that internally as well. Just like we've been doing with the committee. There's one dominant voice. But can we open to what other voices are present? Who else is sitting around that table? And what does that do? when we do that. What does that do? So one thing it does is it brings in a sense of space. Yeah? Brings in a sense of space and it kind of connects us to a wider, bigger picture. Not just one thing, one narrow thing. Not just this belief that this is who I am. This one voice. But starting to also listen, open, look for the quieter voices, maybe. Or the diversity of voices is another way of, of opening up the space. Diversity, not just one thing. So it opens up the space and actually helps us to create a bigger container for our experience a bigger container for our experience. We're not just narrowing down and limited with one thread or one aspect. It opens up the space into a bigger container. And so we can do that through this inner listening of, okay, what other voices there are in the committee, if that's a useful um, way of working or inquiring for us. And we can also do this in other ways. Nathan mentioned one this morning, opening out awareness to sound. Especially if the inner life feels very contracted, very constricted, then we can use our interconnectedness. Yeah? We're using this knowledge that we have. So it can feel like, oh, really, really narrow, really tight in the mind, very contracted, and then we respond. We use the sense. We open up to listen to sounds that are far away. And that naturally 
widens the awareness and opens up the container. Naturally does that. We can also do that through body awareness. Yeah, really come into the body and feel the body. Do that in particular areas of the body, if that's useful, or just with a general sense of wide body awareness. And opens up the container for us. We can do it through using the breath, if that's uh, something that we connect to. Yeah, letting the breath bring us into the body or breathing through different parts in the body, like the meditation that Nathan guided today. All of that, ways of opening up and widening the container. And of course, our primary teacher here, we can do it through contact with nature. Yeah, we can do it with contact with nature, looking at the trees, looking at the mountains, touching the earth. You know, all ways that can really help us to open up, to widen out this container and the space of awareness so it's not restricted and not limited. So to take this a little bit into uh, maybe more detail about the practice here, kind of one possible avenue of exploration. So we're interested in what is present in our experience. Yeah, We're interested to know our experience, to see what's here. Joy is here. Ease is here. Aversion is here. Tiredness is here. Sadness is here, whatever. We're interested to know what is present. What is present? What is here right now? And we're also interested in how we respond and relate to what is present. So not just what is here and then staying just with that, but also interested in how am I responding and a lot of the way that we'll be responding will be our habitual patterns. Yeah, will be a habitual response to something. Tiredness, I can't do this, <laughs> you know. A feeling of not enough space, aversion. You know, we'll have, we'll each have our stories, our ways, our habitual patterns of response to certain types of experience. And we're really interested, well, at least I am, hopefully I'm selling it to you. We're really interested in seeing all of that. Yeah, here is what is present. Here is the habitual response that's arising. And is this response, is this habitual pattern, is it leading to happiness? Or is it leading away from happiness? Without putting in judgment, just interested in that. Is it bringing me happiness? Or is it actually bringing me unhappiness? So interested in that as well. So three things. What is present? How am I responding? And as far as I can tell, where is that response leading? What is it leading to? 
so this is really, um, and Nathan again was touching on it quite a lot in his previous talk, but I'm, I, I want to keep going with it. It's a, it's a process of questioning. It takes interest, but it's a very receptive kind of questioning. Yeah, it's not a kind of like, what's going on? Receptive, without being passive. Receptive without being passive. Yeah, the image that I often have, it's like um, just dropping a stone into a, a body of water. So we're dropping it in. We're dropping in the questioning. We're using the questioning to make contact with what is there. And then we're interested in the ripples. We're interested in what arises in there. So not passive, not aggressive, yeah, receptive, gentle. Another way of saying that is like cultivating a sensitivity to what is arising. We're cultivating sensitivity to what is arising in our experience and how we're responding and where that is leading. Cultivating a sensitivity. So we're cultivating the sensitivity to know our experience in all those three ways that I've said. Do you remember them or do I need to repeat them? <laughs> repeat? Okay. Good. So we're cultivating a sensitivity to know what is happening in my experience, to see how I'm responding to it or reacting to it, and to see where that is leading, if that response is, is, is bringing suffering or happiness, the ending of suffering. So that's one thing. We're cultivating that sensitivity. And then we're also cultivating skillful, wholesome ways of attending to all of that. So if we see that this habitual response is actually not leading to happiness, then we're interested in bringing some change. And so we're interested in cultivating wholesome, skillful ways of attending to what is present in our experience rather than habitual conditioned ways of attending to what is present. And so this takes some dedication, some energy from us. And um, the Buddha spoke about this really, really simply uh, in relation to wise effort and as soon as I say the word effort, I kind of want to say, please check how you're meeting that word. <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot of uh, a lot of agenda to it in 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 the way we we hear it, and what we attribute to it. And this is why um, the way the Buddha spoke about it is so important and so interesting. And I'm going to read read it to make the point. So, what is wise effort? What is wise effort? Wise effort 
is creating the conditions for four things. Yeah, wise effort is creating the conditions for four things to happen. Okay, so the wise effort isn't um, a kind of tensing and it isn't about reaching something, it's about creating the conditions. Yeah, it's like planting seeds. Yeah, creating the conditions for four things to happen. So, what are the four things? Are you curious? You really want to know? Okay. So, we're creating the conditions that will support us to abandon, to let go of unskillful and unwholesome qualities and attitudes. Yeah? We're, we're creating the conditions. Creating the conditions. We're, um, if, again, the, the word that's being used is cultivation, which is agricultural in its root. And it's a really useful metaphor. Yeah? Cultivation. So we're cultivating the soil. We're creating the conditions that, to allow the right things, the skillful things to grow and the unskillful things not to grow. Okay, so just to keep that, that's what we're doing, creating the, the conditions. So the first one, creating the conditions, and I'm, I'm repeating it, creating the conditions that will help us abandon or let go of unskillful and unwholesome qualities, attitudes, mind states. The second, we're creating the conditions that will prevent the arising of unskillful and unwholesome qualities, attitudes, mind states. Yeah? So the mind states. So these two are kind of a pair, yeah? We're looking at the unwholesome, unskillful, ways the mind is inclined, which then feeds our actions, feeds our thoughts, feeds our speech. And we're interested in creating the conditions that will both allow us um, to let go of, of these unwholesome qualities, attitudes, mind states when they arise, and then to also diminish, diminish the arising altogether. Yeah. So that's one pair. You can probably guess what the other pair is, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> and so we're also creating the conditions that support skillful and wholesome qualities, mind states, attitudes to arise and that nourish them to grow when they're already present. Yeah, that's the other pair. So, you know, you could probably give about 60 Dharma talks just on this. Yeah? But I just kind of want to put it out there. Like this is, you know, this is why, um, for me at least, you know, Dharma teachings are, are so beautiful and profound. And so um, 
worth kind of devoting ourselves to because there's so much in here. I'm going to recap again. You know, we look at what is present. We look at the habitual way we respond. We look at whether that is leading to happiness or suffering. And then we bring in the wise effort of how to be with this, how to work with this, how to attend. It's my favorite word in relation to Attend to this in ways that kind of take out the life force from the unwholesome and the unskillful and give the life force to the wholesome and the skillful. Yeah? From that big picture view of the non-inherent nature of self. (laughs) Yeah? From that big picture view. That all interplays together. As Nathan was saying two days ago, because things are changeable, because things are conditioned, we can do this. It's because of that we can do this. So this is a real invitation for us during the time here, a real invitation to explore our experience, to look at what is arising, to look at what is arising and how we are responding and to cultivate, to till the soil, to get, you know, to do this inner cultivation that nourishes the wholesome and stops feeding the unwholesome. And there's countless opportunities, you know. There's always countless opportunities in just through being human. But I think here, especially living as a group and being so, living so simply, there's countless opportunities in every, in every day, in every hour, in every 10 minutes, you know. There's things that are arising that we can look at in this way. You know, things will not be as we'd want them to be. In whatever way, you know, there's not enough silence, there's too much silence. You know, there's, you know, not enough space between me and the next person, there's too much space between me and the next person. You know, whatever it is. There's too much rice, (laughs) there's not enough rice. (laughs) We finally, you know, got the porridge right. What's going to happen if it becomes watery again? (laughs) There's constant opportunities, you know, to to see that, to see that, to look. So countless opportunities to see what is going on, to learn about ourselves and how we function, to grow, yeah, in understanding and in compassion, and to let go countless opportunities to let go of what isn't really that serious yeah or that essential to question you know when things aren't like aren't what I want them to be whether it's the weather or the teachers or whatever it is something isn't 
or my own, you know, mind state or mood. It's not what I'd like it to be. What is causing the suffering? What is causing the suffering? And what could help to let go? What could help to let go? And seeing if it's possible to enjoy the flow and movement. You know, we are not different to the weather. <laughs> Nathan was using that metaphor a lot, but it was really striking me today. In the last 24 hours, actually, when we keep moving from really windy, a little windy, and then these times of incredible stillness, incredible stillness. It's really powerful when we stopped and meditated today. And we're not different. It's the same process is happening within us. But can we see that and that the stillness and the storminess, or the stillness and the wind, they both play a part. Both play a part. So it's not about good and bad, wanted or unwanted. But it's about the relationship to, relationship to. For some reason, I think it started yesterday, but I keep having this... Um, phrase in my mind and it's a phrase from a a t-shirt Nathan bought I don't know how many years ago in Delhi and it had a something in Hindi on it which we were told was a quote from Kabir and finally we found someone who could translate for us what it actually said and what it said was look but with love Look, but with love. That's really been playing in my mind. Such a powerful statement. Now look, look, look at our experience. Look at ourselves. Look at each other. Yeah? Look at experience. Look at myself. Look at each other. Be interested. But look with love. What does that mean? for us, to look with love. And for me, what it means is having that, doing everything I've spoken about so far, with a real attitude of welcoming, a real attitude of welcoming and openness to experience. And again, if we use the metaphor of the weather, I'm sure that You know, if each of us sat down for five minutes, we could write a perfect script for the weather, how we want it to be exactly over the next days for the rest of the Yatra. Yeah? We could. But we, you know, we won't bother because we know it's pointless. Similarly, can we look at our own unfolding and can we look at each other in that same way same way, with love, with welcoming of whatever is arising, even if it's our patterns that we know, that that cause suffering to ourselves and others, but an attitude of welcoming, which is that basic ground which allows that cultivation that the Buddha was speaking about.
right? planting the seeds, creating the conditions for the wholesome to arise and flourish, for the unwholesome to dissolve and disappear. And so we can do this over the days, also intentionally, yeah? Like one, you know, this is a, a practice that I'm doing in the last few months, is to really see when there's aversion or there's a sense of contractedness. Can I open to look with love? Or in Dharma words, to look with goodwill or with friendship, with metta. And how does that change experience? This is you know, where it's so interesting. How does that change experience? You know, so something triggers me. And I can see the habitual aversion or reactivity arising. And in that moment when I see that, I have a choice some of the time. Not all of the time, but I have a choice. And that choice is, can I welcome? Can I open to... Can I bring in the attitude of, can I look with love at this person or this thing or this experience or this inner thing playing out? And what does that do to my sense of self? We go back to that self sense. When that attitude is present, what does that do to my sense of self, to the sense of self? What does that do to a sense of contraction that is probably there? And how does that affect my happiness and well-being? It's really interesting to explore this. And we can also explore the opposite. So maybe, you know, We've gotten caught up in a chain of reactivity and we're in an aversive state or a very sad state or very some kind of difficult state. So can we look then? How is the sense of self manifesting? What is the level of contraction? And how can I bring this attitude of openness, of welcoming, of love into the equation? And so again, we can use what's here, you know, really use nature to help us open. Really use nature. Really use practice, whether it's just silent practice, body awareness, breath awareness, formal metta, compassion practice, whatever it is that we do. Really use that to bring that looking with love. Christina Feldman, who's a, a senior teacher at Guy House um, Meditation Center in England, she speaks of, of metta. I've never heard anyone else speak of that of it in this way. She says metta is an attitudinal, which I think is a word she made up, an attitudinal commitment. So it's a commitment to an attitude. And that's the practice. Yeah? So... It's not just 
you know, we haven't done it here, but I think many of you are familiar with it. You know, it's not just sitting in formal practice and repeating the phrases. It's actually cultivating the attitude of love, of friendship, of goodwill, of welcoming. And so she speaks about this, you know, she says, any moment of aversion, any moment of contraction, we train ourselves, we cultivate the response to bring in metta, to bring in goodwill, to bring in love. So we can connect to that also in the evenings when we chant the metta phrases, connecting to that attitudinal commitment, a commitment to working with that basic attitude. So wish for ourselves, you know, wishing well for others changes something in ourselves. And again, a quote from the suttas, the Buddha speaking about Meta practice. And he says, this is from the Metta Sutta. And he says, um, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. This is, isn't that a great phrase? Skilled in goodness. Yeah? Skilled in goodness. Again, it's the same look but with love, to be skilled in goodness. So this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. It's just a short piece of that. Really beautiful sutta. But I wanted to bring it because it's really what we're doing here. Yeah? In many ways, this is the practice of the yatra. And I love the way it's phrased. You know, this is what should be done. This is the practice of one who is skilled in goodness and who walks the path of peace. You know, let them be. So even though he speaks about one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, he's saying, let them be. Let them be. It's a process. Let them be contented and easily satisfied. So I practice here. I think sometimes we forget that we're living really simply, despite all the perks that our good team provides. We're living really simply, contented and easily satisfied, an aspiration for us. Unburdened with duties, you know, that sense of unburdening that happens when we come into the mountains. You know, I say a, a prayer of gratitude so many times a day for not having internet <laughs> and not having phone and not having connectivity to anything. That's such a gift, such a gift. Unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways. Frugal in our ways. Frugal, frugal like um, not needing much. Simple, being simple. Simplicity.
So this is also a real part of our experience and our practice here, this contentedness, this becoming skilled in goodness. And knowing more deeply the path of peace for ourselves and for all beings. So let's have a quiet moment to bring this to a close. So may we continue to cultivate, nourish the conditions for the arising of the wholesome and the skillful, the abandoning of the unwholesome and the unskillful. May we continue to walk the path of peace and goodness for our own contentment and well-being and for the welfare and and the benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.